Our scripture passage today comes from Luke 19, verses 28 through 48. Hear the word of the Lord. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead going up to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany, an amount that is called Olivet, he sent two of the disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owner said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they sat Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road. And as he was drawing near, already on his way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. He answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near he, and saw the city, he wept over it, saying, Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace, but now they are hidden from your eyes. For the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. And he entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. And when he was teaching daily in the temple, the chief priests and the scribes and the principal of men, principal men of the people were seeking to destroy him but they did not find anything they could do. For all the people were hanging on his words. This is the word of the Lord. Well, nothing big on TV is happening later tonight, is it? Oh, wait, that's right. It is Super Bowl Sunday. I remember last year, after the Chiefs won, I drove back from one of, uh, a home of one of the families in our church and pulled into the parking garage. Before I knew it, Main Street was flooded with people. Cars weren't moving. Literally hordes and hordes of people were flooding the street. The cars were all honking. It just felt like pure chaos. Multitudes of people storming power and light. And so I walked down to power and light and just a few blocks away from my apartment, and literally people were, were dancing on tables. Couples were kissing each other while standing on the actual bars of restaurants. It was perhaps the most wild sight I had ever beheld. And then when the, the day came for the actual parade, the victory parade, I was in Chicago interviewing people for the Christ Community Pastoral Residency. 
And I heard the parade was crazy too. Buses were carrying huge entourages of players and coaches and family members and training staff and whoever else, just all the way to Union Station. And there were many people lining the streets. Businesses were closed down. It seemed like everyone was there. Parents were bringing their children. Civic leaders were there. Quentin Lucas, the mayor of Kansas City, he was there. The governor of the state of Missouri, even he was there. It had been 50 years since Kansas City won a Super Bowl. And so after a long season, one filled with ups and downs and moments for the history books, it seemed like the perfect way to end the season with a victory parade on the streets of downtown Kansas City. A whole city celebrates. And maybe, just maybe, we're going to have something similar happen tonight. But as we approach our scripture passage today, this parade that I just described to you is what should have been happening in our text. You see, the whole city of Jerusalem should have been celebrating Jesus' coming into the city. After Luke 9 and Jesus' transfiguration in front of his closest disciples, he has now been journeying towards Jerusalem for a while. And literally Luke captures Jesus' movements as he is on the way, hoofing it towards Jerusalem. And as he moves towards Jerusalem, Luke records chapter after chapter, Jesus teaching about the kingdom of God a whole lot. Jesus revealing the kingdom of God the way that he lives and healing the sick, giving sight to the blind, forgiving sins. When Jesus finally makes it to Jerusalem, there's no parade like the Chiefs' victory parade last year. But there should have been. There were no words from the top civic leaders, no government escort. The whole city wasn't there witnessing it. This is the fascinating thing about that, though. Jesus isn't surprised. In fact, Jesus is trying to communicate something through these events to us. He's trying to reveal to us something about the kind of king that he is and the kind of kingdom he wants to bring. Jesus is wanting to draw a response from us. He's wanting to ask us the question, will we choose this type of king? Would we prefer someone with the pomp and circumstance? Or do we want King Jesus? If you have your Bibles with you, or a Bible on your phone, look with me at Luke chapter 19. I'm going to read uh, part of our passage, starting with verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going up to Jerusalem. When he drew near to Bethpage and Bethany at the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied, on which no one has ever yet sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told him. Jesus is on the Mount of Olives. 
a small mountain range just east of Jerusalem. And when you stand on it, you can see the city. And so Jesus, before he enters into the city, he sends two of his disciples on this mission to get him a ride. Because, right, kings don't, don't just uh, don't walk into town. Kings ride into town in the ancient Near East. In fact, for someone reading this gospel in the first century, they would have understood what is going on here. When a victorious king returns to his city, he needs to give the appearance of authority and power. And so he needs a mighty steed. He needs a powerful looking entourage. But a few things stand out about Jesus' entrance. First, he decides he wants to ride on a donkey. This isn't the most prestigious of all powerful steeds, is it? And then Jesus embarks down a mountain, and on the final portion of that pathway to the city, Luke doesn't report anyone else joining the entourage. Luke, of course, talks about the disciples and the crowd, but these were people already following him. As, as far as we know it, no one else comes to join them. And then to everyone in the city, This crowd that's been following Jesus starts chanting, Blessed is the King, the one who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. But to everyone else, this this must have just felt odd. Then to add even more awkwardness to the moment, the Pharisees who are watching at a distance, they just try to get Jesus to stop all this nonsense that people are chanting and shouting. They just want to shut it up. Why would Jesus, the King, the Messiah, God Himself, make this kind of entrance to the holy city of Jerusalem? What point is Jesus trying to make? Well, let me read for you a passage from an Old Testament prophet, Zechariah. This is what Zechariah has to say. Rejoice greatly. O daughter of Zion, shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. I will cut off the chariot from Ephraim and the war horse from Jerusalem, and the battle bow shall be cut off, and he shall speak peace to the nations." His rule shall be from sea to sea and from the river to the ends of the earth. What Zechariah is predicting is indeed the coming of the Messiah. And Jesus is purposefully fulfilling this prophecy in his actions in Luke 19. He rides on the colt, on a colt, into Jerusalem. Anyone who says Jesus didn't make claims of divinity or, or claimed to be the promised Messiah, hasn't really read the Bible in context. This is a clear, unequivocal statement from Jesus that he is the fulfillment of what the Old Testament scriptures have promised for centuries. In other words, he is saying, I am the king. I am the promised heir from David. I am God's son. But it's also interesting that Jesus picked this passage to fulfill. This is the passage that he wants to fulfill. He picks a passage that has words like humble and peace to the nations. Jesus could have, if he wanted to, he could have picked a battle, but he didn't. 
If he wanted to, Jesus could have started a militant revolution, but he didn't. There was no giant war horse. There was no victory chariot. It was just the donkey. This is Jesus' first choice that he's presenting us with. He's asking us, do you want the powerful king or do you want the humble king? Essentially, Jesus is asking us what we want. What characteristics do we want in our king? Do we want the king of war or do we want the king of peace? Do we want the king of power or do we want the king of service? What do we want? I've been reading a book lately called Gentle and Lowly, The Heart of Christ for Sinners and Sufferers. And I actually have asked all of the community group leaders to read this book. The author, Dane Ortland is a pastor out in the west suburbs of Chicago. He was a former executive at Crossway Publishers, and he did his PhD at Wheaton College. And the first few sentences of the book are this. He says, this book is about the heart of Christ. Who is he? Who is he really? What is most natural to him? What ignites within him most immediately as he moved towards sinners and sufferers? What flows out most freely, most instinctively? Who is he? Dane Ortland goes on to talk about this Puritan theologian, Thomas Goodwin. And the way the Puritans would write books, they would, they would write them this way. They would take one Bible verse, and then they'd write 300 pages on that Bible verse. They'd, they'd leech it for everything they could. They'd pull everything that they could out from that verse and then connect it with other passages in the Bible. And the verse that Thomas Goodwin chose to write about in his book, The Heart of Christ, what we now know as the, as, as the Heart of Christ, he, he, the, the scripture he chose to write about is Hebrews 4, 15. And this is the original title of the book, which is so long, it's, it's almost hysterical, but this gives you an idea a little bit more about the Puritans. This was the, this was the title. The Heart of Christ in Heaven Towards Sinners on Earth, or a Treatise Demonstrating the Gracious Disposition of, and Tender Affection of Christ in His Human Nature, Now in Glory, Unto His Members, Under All Sorts of Infirmities, Either Sin or of Misery. <laughs> that gives you a little bit of a taste of just the Puritans and how they wrote. But let me read for you Hebrews 4.15. This is the, the verse that Thomas Goodwin chose to write about. For we do not have a great high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. And listen to why Goodwin says he chose this passage. He says this, I have chosen this text as that which above any other speaks to his heart, him talking about Jesus, his heart most, and sets out the frame and the workings of it towards sinners. And that so sensibly that it does, as it were taking our hands and laying them upon Christ's breast. And let us feel how his heart beats and his affections yearn towards us even now as he is in glory. The very scope of these words being manifestly to encourage believers against all that might discourage them from the very consideration of Christ's heart toward them in heaven. And Ortland he follows up and asks this question, 
What would it be like for a friend to take our hands and to place them on the chest of the risen Lord Jesus? So that like a stethoscope, letting us hear the vigorous strength of a beating heart physically, our hands let us feel the vigorous strength of Christ's deepest affections and longings. Well, Goodwin is saying, we don't have to wonder about that. Hebrews 4.15 is that friend. Jesus is a king whose primary posture towards his people is gentleness and lowliness. And this is embodied in his entrance to Jerusalem where he sits on a donkey. He's not puffed up with pride. He's not looking down on anyone from a mighty steed. Jesus is sitting at eye level. He's able to look at people's faces. He's on the most common of all animals, which is basically the equivalent of like a 2005 Honda Civic. And as he lays claim to his messianic throne, he gets close to entering the city. And what does Luke tell us happens? Luke says in verse 41, And when he drew near to the city, he wept over it. Jesus, King, Messiah, in his triumphal parade, weeps. This language in the original here is just communicating audible crying, right? There's, no, there's not just one tear trickling down Jesus' face. Jesus is weeping. And out of his tears, he prophesies this. Would that you, even you, had known on this day the things that make for peace. But now they are hidden from your eyes, for the days will come upon you when your enemies will set up a barricade around you and surround you and hem you in on every side and tear you down to the ground, you and your children within you. And they will not leave one stone upon another in you because you did not know the time of your visitation. Jesus knows the tension between Rome and Jerusalem will end up boiling over. He predicts what happens in A.D. 70, that the city and temple would be ransacked. And once this happens, Jerusalem is really never the same again. The ancients kept a great record of what happens. It was, it was horrible. It was awful. And what Jesus knows is that if somehow the city would repent, or as Jesus puts it, do the things that make for peace, all this could be different. And yet he knows what's coming. He already prophesied his own death. He knows he will be rejected, crucified, killed. It's overwhelmingly dark. And so he weeps. And this is the second choice Jesus presents us with. Do you want the king who wars or the king who weeps? And for people who were witnessing Jesus weeping at that moment, they really didn't understand what was happening. Luke doesn't tell us that they wept with him. And so in some ways, it's an argument from silence. But we can assume that the crowds don't weep with him because they don't really understand what's coming. But there are a few things, there are things in our lives and in our world today that make Jesus weep. As the author of Hebrews says in Hebrews 
4.15, Jesus is our high priest. He is the person who stands between us and God and intercedes for us like the high priest would between Israel and God. Jesus cries out for us on our behalf. He is our representative. We are clothed in His righteousness and He is gentle. He is lowly. He prays for us. He weeps with us. What are the things that make Jesus weep? Well, if you haven't trusted him as king, he weeps because the peace you need is right there. If only you would grasp hold of it. But there are also addictions and patterns within the hearts and minds of those of us who follow him. Or there are weighty burdens that we carry out of no fault from our own. These things grieve his spirit inside of us. And it can cause him to weep for us and cause him to cry out for our freedom. There are so many parts of our world, just injustices and evils. And we prayed for two of these things earlier this month, racial injustice and and the life of the unborn. And Jesus weeps around these things. Are we weeping with him? Well, Jesus, you know, he finally ends up making it to Jerusalem. And this is the climax of the whole gospel of Luke. And Luke tells us what happens, starting in verse 45. He says, He entered the temple and began to drive out those who sold, saying to them, It is written, My house shall be a house of prayer, but you have made it a den of robbers. So Jesus goes into the outer courts of the temple where the buying and selling of goods is happening and people are buying animals for sacrifices. People are exchanging money to give to the temple. If you've ever been to a temple somewhere in Asia, maybe a Buddhist or Hindu temple, you've seen that temples do become centers of commerce, right? But at once, Jesus, with what seems to be emotions of anger, drives out the sellers. And then he quotes two passages from the Old Testament. The first is from the prophet Isaiah, who called the temple a house of prayer for all nations. And the second is from the prophet Jeremiah, who hundreds of years before Jesus warned extortion and corruption have no place in the temple. It is not made to be a den of robbers. Jesus' words are soaked with Holy Scripture. And scholars have different opinions upon the intricacies about what's just happening here. But I want to focus on what's most significant. Jesus enters the city and he goes straight to the temple. And what's interesting is that the Roman army, they were even stationed at the temple. The Roman army was this powerful and swift right hand of the Roman Empire that was used to ensure the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. It was peace at the cost of a heavy hand. But instead of kicking those guys out of the temple who were pagans, who were practicing an entirely different religion. Jesus goes to his own people and he says, why is this court open to people other than Jews full of corruption? This is supposed to be a house of prayer for all peoples. Instead of calling the, calling the corrupt Roman government evil and oppressive, Jesus goes to his own people. And he says, you, 
not them. You have made this place a den of robbers. And this is where Jesus gives us our final choice. He asks, do you want a king who coddles or do you want a king who confronts? It's in this moment where Jesus confronts his own people, where the straw breaks the camel's back when it comes to setting off Jesus' enemies. And you can look at what Luke records in the very next verse, in verse 47, he says, And he was teaching daily in the temple. The chief priests and the scribes and the principal men of this people were seeking to destroy him. Now, Jesus loves you. He does. But he will not coddle you. And yes, Jesus is gentle. Yes, he is lowly. And yes, he is holy. And he wants to make you holy. And he stands for justice and righteousness. There's a familiar phrase that Christians like my grandparents used to call the Holy Spirit, and that's that they would call him the hound of heaven. You might have heard that. And that phrase comes from a poem of the same name by Francis Thompson, an English poet. When people feel a sense of conviction from God, that there's something on their mind that they just can't get off, or something on their chest that's just chasing them down wherever they go, they can't run from it. Sometimes, that's the Spirit of God hounding you. It's God's Spirit trying to tell you something. It's Jesus confronting you with something. See, there are tables in our lives that Jesus will turn over. There are temple courts in our lives that need cleansing. There are blind spots, corruption, greed, pride that King Jesus will not tolerate. Not in His holy temple, which is our bodies, our souls, our minds. Jesus' Spirit, His Holy Spirit, which is left as a deposit within us, is unrelenting. And as we finish our time together, I just want to remind you that there's no middle ground in Jesus' kingdom. As Jesus was going throughout His public ministry, everything He did was to draw a response. Jesus didn't want apathy. He wanted to force people to choose. There's no sitting on the fence in Jesus' kingdom. He doesn't leave us with that luxury. There's one last chance he leaves us with, or choice, I'm sorry. There's one last choice he leaves us with, and that is to crown him or kill him. And even if you have crowned him, we're still tempted to want the powerful, the warrior Jesus, or, or even the coddling best buddy Jesus that we make up within our heads, right? We make him say what we want to hear and make him do what we want to do. But the really tough part is accepting that if we really want to follow the real Jesus, King Jesus. And that means picking up our cross daily and following our gentle, humble, and lowly King into rejection, weeping, and crucifixion. That's hard. But even in the midst of difficulty, there's real hope. When Jesus is first coming down the Mount of Olives, the Pharisees tell him to stop the crowd. 
Now Luke records what the Pharisees said, and he records Jesus' response. He says, Some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. What Jesus is saying here is, if you saw me for who and what I really am, creation itself would erupt with praise. The trees of the field would clap their hands. The sun, moon, and stars would sing. Heaven and earth would join in on this celebration. Jesus is saying, if I decided to, I could overwhelm the world with my glory and my power and my might, but I won't. Not yet. You see, Jesus is not that kind of king. Most kings hold their throne through power, strength, fear, and intimidation. But Jesus, he holds his throne through love, sacrifice, forgiveness, and grace. Most kings try to win the worlds of this world, wars of this world. Only Jesus won the war that is not of this world. Most kings try to get everyone to cheer for them. They get on a war machine. They raise the war cry. They show their power. The crowds love it. But only King Jesus has to restrain the very creation from crying out. Someday we will see that triumphal entry where Jesus will be crowned with many crowns and the humble lamb will be seated on his throne. But here's my advice, and you can take it or leave it. I'm 29 years old. Even in your confusion and frustration with him, and even in your questions and your doubts, even when he doesn't do what you want him to and instead confronts you on what you don't want him to, here's my advice. Crown him. Make him your king. What you'll find is that you have a great high priest. You have a great king who says, Come to me, you who are weary and heavy laden. For I'm gentle and lowly in heart. Put my yoke on you, and you will find rest for your souls. Would you pray with me, please? Lord, we thank you for your words. King Jesus, we thank you. Holy Spirit, we thank you. Jesus, we thank you for your sacrifice. May we see you as king. Thank you that you're humble and gentle. May we en envision you rightly. Thank you that we can approach you boldly and confidently. We pray that your word would always be nourishing to us. And we ask for more of your spirit with us as we go throughout our days. Father, it's in the name of your son, Jesus Christ, I pray these things. Amen. As we move into our time of communion, I'm reminded that Jesus has promised to come again. And he encourages us to eat his body and to drink his blood and to feed on him as our daily bread so we might be strengthened as we wait for his return. I read a liturgy last week during this time, and I'd like to read it for us again before we get to the words of institution. So please listen to these words. The table of bread is now to be made ready. It is the table of the company with Jesus and all who love him. It is the table of sharing with the poor of the world with whom Jesus identified himself. It is the table of communion with the earth in which Christ became incarnate. 
So come to this table, you who have much faith and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often and you who have not been for a long time. You who have tried to follow Jesus and you who have failed. Come, it is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Let me read into our hearing what Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 11. The words of institution, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he was betrayed, he took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. These are the gifts of God for the people of God. Take them in remembrance that Christ died for you and feed on him in your hearts by faith with thanksgiving. Amen.